0: We are gathered here this morning to worship your name. You alone are worthy of our praise. You alone are worthy of our lives. Even as we sing those songs, we can be reminded that we join in the anthem of the angels. Who never cease to sing worthy are you, Lord. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is filled with his glory. God, we need to see your glory again, revealed in your word, revealed in your Son. We have spent a week, uh, undoubtedly, being captivated by, being distracted by lesser glory lesser things, the things of this earth. and So we need your help, even for this brief hour we get to spend together to untangle uh, the mess in our hearts, to be able to see rightly who you are, to be able to see rightly who we are in light of who you are, to be amazed by grace again. And so we say, before we open your word, God, we say, worthy are you to receive glory and honor in dominion, and power forever. You're worthy of our lives and our attention now. As we look to your word, I pray, through the supernatural work of your spirit, that you would open our eyes to the things that we can't see left to ourselves. Give us spiritual sight to see our hearts in ways that we are naturally deceived from seeing. Use this time to make us more like Christ. Use this time to increase our love for you and decrease our love for the things of the world. We need you. We expect you to act according to your word and according to your promises that your word won't return void. Help our hearts to be humble and hungry to receive now what you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, go ahead and grab your Bibles. We're gonna go to the book of Philippians this morning. Good morning. I hope you're doing well. My name is Matt Moorhead. one of the pastors here. Always a, always a delight to be with you, such a joy to be with God's people and to sing, and to, as I mentioned even in my prayer, to untangle the difficulty in our hearts we often bring in and the challenge from our week, and we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2 this morning. If you haven't been with us over the last several weeks, we've been in a, a topical series called Kingdom Relationships. Uh, just kind of flown out of our heart as pastors in the midst of a season where there's been some shepherding things afoot, and we felt like it would be fruitful before we launch into uh, preaching through several small Old Testament books this fall to take some time to think about uh, what, is, what is the difference that the kingdom of God makes in relationships? So the kingdom that we looked at the first week, kind of defining this uh, often used, but maybe seldom understood term in the Bible. The kingdom, one way to understand it, is the place where the king, God himself, reigns and he rules. And so there's this, there's a picture in the Bible that for those of us who have surrendered to Jesus, we've surrendered to to our king. And so the power of the kingdom has has come into our lives and is expressed outward from us in a particular way, in all sorts of ways, quite frankly. And one of those ways is in the context of our relationships. And so we've looked at forgiveness and conflict resolution. We looked last week at the fear of man. And this week we'll look at pride and humility. A topic that's all over the Bible, but we'll look in Philippians chapter 2. Uh, arguably, maybe not even arguably, the most powerful depiction of the incarnation of Jesus is found in the first part of Philippians chapter 2. And that's what we'll journey through this morning. So over the years, uh, some of you probably had this experience um, with children, with your own children. Your kids, when they're a certain age, I don't know at what point this this idea um, becomes basically a, a foolish idea to them. But but kids will hide by covering their eyes. Have ever seen this phenomenon? So they'll hide like in the hallway, like in your living room, not covered up by anything, but they'll just cover their own eyes thinking that if they can't see you, then, well, you can't see them, right? But they're hidden in plain sight. And so one of the things I would submit as we look at this topic, um, I was thinking this morning as I was praying just how we so often pray and we should pray for God's blessing upon our lives, our relationships. Uh, We ask God for healing, healing over our relationships and the broken places of our lives, and we should do that. But I just wonder if the principle of pride and humility is like a principle for us that's hidden in plain sight, that so much of the blessing and healing that we we long for is actually attainable easily, in a sense, by walking through a supernatural but very simple principle, to kill pride, and to pursue humility. And we'll see Paul this morning as he, as he writes a letter. The book of Philippians is written to a church, in a sense, much like us, made up of people from different backgrounds who are collected together in this thing called the local church, this miracle, this curious group of people that have a common salvation. And so they're collected in this city called Philippi, in a local church. And many of the letters in the New Testament are sent to churches to deal with relational issues. So at the end of chapter one in the book of Philippians, you can say that Paul deals with conflict from without. So he talks to them about how to stand strong and how to be united in the, in the event that they, they undergo persecution from outside the camp. And now in Philippians two, it's almost as if he turns to say, let me just talk to you about the conflict that you may have from within, from within yourself, from within the church. And so he launches into this treatise on... Humility. And we're going to read verses 1 through 11 in their entirety and then we'll go back and make some observations. Why don't you read there with me? Philippians chapter 2, verse verses 1. This is God's word for us. It says So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven, And on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. This is God's word. Over the years, as we've dealt with conflict in our home, I can think of many times where maybe the girls have fought with one another, or maybe maybe they've even been disobedient to me or their mom. And sometimes what we can do is we can appeal to them as like a higher plane, something like this. Like, hey, that's, that's your sister. Like, you shouldn't treat your sister that way. Or don't you, don't, you love your, don't you love your mom? So there's an appeal to them in a moment of defiance or conflict that kind of brings them higher than the, the momentary conflict. And it kind of roots them in a, in a bigger identity in the moment. And it seems like that's something of what Paul is doing right here at the beginning of this section, that we talked about, if there's any encouragement, it's almost like a list of rhetorical questions, much like we sang in Is He Worthy? So, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, all these things, Paul is saying, You have all these things. It could be read maybe a little bit like this Don't we have Jesus Christ as the remedy for our sickness? Don't we? Like, isn't he the savior of our souls? Like, haven't we been comforted and helped by his love when there's nowhere else to turn? Isn't the spirit helping us see and pursue the things of God? Isn't he the same spirit that knits together this kingdom people as a local church and who have fellowship with one another? Like, isn't he the one who has done these things? Don't you have these things? And so Paul seems to appeal to a, a bigger, more heavenly identity is the, the basis for their ability to pursue humility. But first, he commends them to find a deep sense of unity in the way in which they've been called, their common identity. In verse 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So as kingdom people, we are called to strive for deep, abiding unity. That's our call within the body of Christ. And as much as it depends on us, we should seek to be at peace with, with all men. You see that in the book of Romans that Paul commends us to. But as kingdom people, we're called to strive for deep, abiding unity. And one of the places we can look <clears throat> in John chapter 17, if you've never read John chapter 17, it's one of those places where you get such a unique look. Like what? like, what would Jesus pray if he prayed for me? Just read John 17. The high priestly prayer. Jesus' prayer for his people is captured in John 17. You hear his own words for his disciples and by way of his disciples to us. He says these things. And just look for the picture of unity that's so clear and deep here. Verse 11, he says, Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one, the oneness of the Trinity, of Father, Son, and Spirit. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And that's us by extension. Verse 21, he says, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. So there's this real deep prayer for unity. Did you see the purpose of it? Make them one, the people of God, the kingdom people, make them unified so that the world might know that you sent me. Give them oneness, the same oneness, Father, that I have with you. Give to your people to have with one another so that the world might know that you sent me. We often talk about, like, don't we want the world to see that Jesus makes a difference? And one of the spaces where that's evident is, is striving for deep, abiding unity that's really rooted in humility. And we'll get there in just a moment. At the end of Philippians 4, and I love the fact that this The scriptures are so practical. If you look at this letter, if you just flip to your right, probably one page in your Bible, there's these two women. Yudia and Syntyche, I believe are the pronunciation of those names. But the meat of it is, entreat them to agree in the Lord. Tell them to have one mind. So as you look at this letter it's got present in it. Like, hey, tell these two sisters to remember the harmonies they have in Jesus and tell them to have one mind as they relate to each other. Like, how practical. And maybe we need to hear that. As we've journeyed through conflict resolution and forgiveness and I've commended you in different ways to follow up in relationships where there's brokenness, this is another good reminder. It's like, hey, don't sleep on that. Keep working and striving together, having one mind in the faith, remembering the harmony that we possess in the Lord is the, the great neutralizer of the various things that bring division and disunity in the body. Remember the harmony that you've been given in Jesus. Strive to build it, cultivate it, and maintain it so that the world might know that Jesus has come to the world and has made a difference in us. And Paul goes on to talk about, okay, how do you pursue this unity? First thing he gives us is two negative commands, really one and the same, but two layers. Verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Kingdom people, abandon selfishness and empty conceit. So he says, do nothing from selfishness. Stop being selfish. Selfish ambition or self-promotion is the cause of countless conflicts in the body of Christ, And otherwise, so let's just level the playing field here. Every single one of us is selfish, right? We all struggle with self. In fact, you say it's the god of our age, selfism, and so we build a world wherein we function like God, and we build relationships wherein everything revolves around us. And Paul says, first, like, don't do anything from selfish ambition. And this term, selfish ambition, ambition by itself isn't necessarily ungodly. There's some godly ambition, but selfish ambition is not that. This is almost like a political term. If you look back just in language over the centuries, this word was used almost like a political picture, like a campaigning for one's self. The picture of a campaign in our relationship for importance and supremacy you know, we've seen enough campaigns probably over the years, like, you know, a company's campaigns, it's usually a smear campaign of someone else, and it's usually a campaign of yourself that puts you in the best light. Now, we hate those campaign ads, that same war exists in our hearts. You know, when you have conflict, what you want to do is you want to do a smear campaign against the person that you're in conflict with and put yourself in the best light to give yourself a pass on the hard work that God wants you to do. And God says, don't do anything with selfish ambition. Trying to lift yourself up into a place of self-righteousness or self-promotion. James pictures selfish ambition, the same word we're looking at here, like a gateway sin to all sorts of craziness in the body of Christ. James 3.16, he says, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. It's bad news. But like the ugly twin... Selfishness is accompanied by empty conceit. He says, do nothing from empty conceit. Now there's a whole lot of things I don't like about cultural Easter. One of my least favorite things about Easter is hollow Easter bunnies (laughs) and hollow Easter eggs. Right, because you you bite into them and immediately you're struck with like, these cheapskates, (laughs) you can't fill this thing with chocolate. I know they got machinery for that. Just fill it up with something. Put something in the middle. Like, I've been cheated. Like, there's no substance to this. And that's what this word is like it's depicting hollow glory. Don't do anything to promote yourself and don't pursue anything for hollow glory. Something that looks good on the outside but never satisfies, it never fills. The picture might be something like this. Those who who are full of themselves are chasing hollow glory. All your effort of validation is in vain if you do it with selfish motives, empty conceit. same word is used in Galatians 5. It says, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit, verse 26, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. That passage seems to connect empty conceit, vain glory-seeking, and boastfulness to a combativeness with other people. The heart and posture that, in the context of relationships, may say something like this, inwardly at least, show me what you got. Show me that you're worth my sacrifice. Demonstrate to me that you're worth my time. And the picture here is that we campaign for ourselves, we pursue ultimately glory that's vain, and we become conceited thinking that only those who prove their worth are worthy of our sacrifice. Does that sound like the gospel? That's antithetical to what Jesus has done, right? Because God demonstrates his love for you and I, if you're a Christian in this room, that while we were sinners that Christ died for us. At the time that we were weak, he died for the ungodly. He, he died for those who were undeserving. He sacrificed for those who are undeserving. And in contrast to campaigning for selfish interests or pursuing self in our relationships, kingdom people operate with a different set of, of accounting principles and that's the two words that come next Paul says but in humility of mind as opposed to selfish ambition empty conceit and humility or with humility of mind count others more significant than yourselves so kingdom relationships rise and fall based on how we think and where we look That's these two terms They rise and fall based on how we think and where we look. With humility of mind, count others more significant than yourselves. So count or consider, deem, think. Kingdom people count differently than the world. So the king has transformed the way that we think, so we look at God and we look at other people differently. We count other people to be more important than ourselves versus campaigning for our own interests. Our goal is to pursue the interests of other people. That's supernatural. We're not naturally given to that. But God does supernatural thing. When the kingdom comes into a person's life, that's what it accomplishes. Because we've talked about this in previous weeks. Because the kingdom of heaven doesn't work by the rules of earth, right? Or the rules of man. But there's a battlefield in our mind for importance and significance. It's kind of a me versus the world. Battle. And maybe even moment by moment, you might say it's me versus you. Who's the most important in the conversation? Who's the most important one in the room? Who's the most important one in the relationship? Whose needs matter most? We have this ongoing battle of significance. Who do I deem most important and significant in this relationship? It would be good for us just to walk in the reality of I'm not the most important person in the room. I am not that big a deal. Since my kids were little, I've been trying to convince them that I'm a really big deal. It's an ongoing joke for us. Recently, I got objective evidence that I'm kind of a big deal. I got voted into the hall of fame of my high school for basketball. Now, I know it sounds like a big deal. There's 99 people in my graduating class. Okay, small town, basketball's like the God. I happen to be pretty decent at basketball. And like when I got that call, I was like, girls, I've been trying to tell y'all I'm a big deal. Your whole life, now there's finally proof. But we laugh about that, but I think the the struggle is very real. When I get up to preach every Sunday, there's a battle that takes place in my heart because I want to look like a big deal. You could say it that way, in a casual way. I want you to think something of me. I don't want to just be a pass through to the cross. There's something about me that wants to preach and present well so that you might affirm me. But we all struggle with that. Subtly in our hearts, there's this voice that says, prove to them you're a big deal. Make them treat you like you're a big deal. Jesus is the only big deal. And he rescues people. He fills them with his life so that he can be seen through them. That's what kingdom people are. That's what kingdom relationships are to to be about, to see the reality of the kingdom and the king and his principles, his life filling us as clay vessels, right? These brittle jars carrying about treasure, just sprinkling the life of Jesus on those around us, right? A right accounting of our importance is found through humility of mind. Maybe just some questions to consider in your interactions with people. Like, do you find yourself preoccupied by what you deserve in your relationships and interactions? Do you see yourself and your needs as more valuable in the relationship or worth more? The idea of more significant, which is the language that Paul uses in our text, you see also in Philippians three eight. you might recognize this verse. In verse 8 of chapter 3, it says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth That's the same term, more significant, surpassing worth. So you would kind of almost, you could put that term back in our text. Count others as having surpassing worth than yourself. Is that the way we see our relationships? It's the way that Paul saw Christ, the way we're commended to see Christ. Verse 4 says, let each of you look not only to his own interests. So we, we count, then we also look. We look to not only our own interests, but the interests of others. Be watchful, like keep your eyes open to the interests. you ever met someone who just seems to be preoccupied with how to serve other people? That's the picture of the believer. It's like we're on the watch for ways that we can be a blessing. We're on the watch for how we can meet the needs of other people. But if we're honest, we spend more of our time being watchful of how our needs can be met. Like where is the person in this room that could could meet some need that I have? Where's going to be my moment when I return home where I can unplug and get my needs met by just not having anybody want anything from me? Anybody relate to that? I do. That's the way that we're given to. And even after the miracle of rebirth in Christ, we need supernatural help to fix our eyes upon, to turn our attention to, to be attentive to the needs of other people above and beyond our own needs. Your interests can't be all that you're interested in. And maybe that's like the appeal of selfies, right? Because we always get to be in the picture. It's like you get to determine, like you get to be the center of the moment, right? That's why it seems to be why those things exist. We talked about this before. I think I've said this in discernment, sermon. Like, because any picture you're not in just really isn't all that interesting. So we want to be in the center of the picture, the center of the conversation, the center of the moment, the point made. All of us struggle with that. But God says, hey, just consider other people more important. You're not that big a deal. Let them see a power within you from me that elevates the importance of other people above yourself. And that word, interests, or looking not only to, the picture of looking is used in Philippians 3.14 as the goal. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So that each one of you set as your goal the interest and benefit of others instead of merely your own. Why? Because it's what Jesus did. It's what Jesus Christ did. He sacrificed for the benefit of others. That's the message of the gospel. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. It was wonderful about verse 5. Look there with me. Have this mind. This is where the hinge point comes, and now we get to see the glory of Jesus. I'm going to have to move somewhat quickly through this, but I love this text. It's just going to be text heavy. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. But here we have in verse 5, you have both the command and the capacity. Have this mind among yourselves which what which is yours in Christ Jesus isn't that a comfort It's this biblical principle god never calls us to do something he won't enable us to do he gives us the power to obey him and the call to have the mind of christ is something we've already been given we're called to walk in it have this mind among yourselves which is also in christ Jesus, possessing humility of mind, abandoning self and considering the needs of others first, this is the way kingdom people live because Jesus, our King, lived this way. And this is what Paul goes on to say. Who though, speaking of Jesus, was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is probably the most vivid depiction in the Scriptures of what happened when Jesus became a man. He existed in the form of God. He was God, always has been God. But he didn't hold on to it. As we're tempted to count ourselves as more important than others, in our tendency to assert our own significance, we remember Jesus, we replicate his life and sacrifice. Let me just kind of rattle through three significant texts. And if you want to remember this, as you look at Jesus, the deity of Jesus, there's three chapter ones that are significant. John chapter one, Colossians chapter one, and Hebrews chapter one. Maybe that'll be a helpful memory tool. John chapter one, verses one through three. It says, in the beginning was the word. Let me just commend you here. Like I'm going to read through these texts, but don't get lost in how much there is. But just kind of marinate on what we're hearing. This is the one who emptied himself, was born in the likeness of man, found in human form, and he came to serve and ultimately became obedient to death on a cross. That's the one that we hear about in these three texts. So let's just read these together. In the beginning was the word. Speaking of Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that has been made. Colossians 1 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He has all the rights and honor of the firstborn. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent or have first place. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Everything that God is, Jesus is completely. Completely. Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 3 says this Long ago, and in many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Everything God is, Jesus is completely. So what's the relevance to cultivating humility in the heart of a human being who knows this king? Jesus didn't hold on to everything that he deserved. It's not that he didn't grasp it intellectually. He didn't assert it. He didn't use it for his benefit that he might sacrifice for his people. He didn't count equality with God a thing to be asserted. He didn't assert his significance in his earthly ministry. And let me just share these statements with you. It's just a devotional tool and maybe just to encourage us As we finish off, he has eternally been served by angel armies, but he takes the form of a servant. All things were made through him. Now he is made in the likeness of men. Man was made in his image. Now he is made in the image of man. The one in whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell is pleased to dwell with man. His glory is higher than the heavens, but he becomes lower than the angels. The one who holds up the universe by his powerful word is held up on a wooden cross. Every inch of the universe obeys his voice, and now he becomes obedient to death. And if this message is foreign to you, those two words, obedience and death, give us a good pause. Because in the gospel message, at least part of what we hear is this. Is that Jesus actively obeyed the Father in a way that you and I never could and never would. His active obedience was him loving God and loving people completely and fully. So he actively obeyed His father. And then when he went to the cross, in what's called his passive obedience, he absorbed the judgment that you and I deserve because of our rebellion. And in his passive obedience, he becomes the object of the wrath of God for our sin, like a sponge to soak up every ounce of our judgment. He obeyed the father and went to the cross. He emptied himself He never lacked the power and authority as king, but he willingly chose to empty himself to serve. Family, here's our challenge. You and I militantly hold on to perceived rights in our relationships. Jesus had all the rights, and he emptied himself for the benefit of others. And our call is to follow his example. Don't do anything in a way that self-promotes, that seeks empty glory for the moment. But with humility of mind, consider one another more important than yourselves. Don't just look to your own interests, but look to the interests of others. Why? Because that's what Jesus did. That's how we have life. That's how you can wake up tomorrow morning to new mercy. Because Jesus didn't hold on to his rights as king, but he suffered as a servant in your place. So you could be free and forgiven. You could be reconciled to God, and I could be too. So empty yourself of perceived rights in order to serve others. Jesus in Luke 22, he says, you know, these leaders in the world, they lord over those. But not so among you. And I'm among you as one who serves. The one who wants to be first shall be slave or servant of all. Maybe we could ask a similar question like we did before. Like, didn't he become like us, putting on flesh and dwelling among us and being tempted in every way like we are yet without sin? Like, didn't he do that? And now Hebrews says he sympathizes with our weakness. One of the things maybe of considering others more important than ourselves is to give consideration for how we sympathize with one another. His incarnation leads to his being a sympathetic high priest who knows how we feel. But Jesus is the living and perfect example of what it means to count others more significant than ourselves. And kingdom people follow the pattern of life and sacrifice of the king. His will is done and are having the same mind he had. His kingdom has come when we lay our lives down for the benefit of others, and Jesus' humiliation culminated in his execution. But then his execution gave way to his exaltation. And that's the promise for the believer, that the one who is humbled will be exalted. The one who is exalted will be humbled. The low road is where the blessing is. So in all the prayers for blessing and protection, healing in our relationships, let me just encourage you, take the route maybe that's this hidden in plain sight. When God says he's opposed to the proud and he gives grace to the humble, remember that that road of humility, as difficult as it may feel, was walked in front of you by the Savior. One of our challenges is we just don't get enough joy in looking like Jesus. It's not as appealing to us to sacrifice for other people, to follow in his steps, like we'd rather have the, the vain glory of being affirmed in the moment or having people meet our needs first. It's because we don't see it as supremely satisfying to walk in his steps. And I'm not just saying you, I'm saying Us. But Jesus' execution gave way to his exaltation and a supreme demonstration of how God lifts up the humble. This is what we hear at the end. This is what we'll close with. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And this surprises us. Like the unexpected nature of the Messiah being crucified. We don't expect, we often don't believe there will be blessing to follow our choice to die to self. Our selfishness, our pursuit of ease, our tendency to elevate our own importance will obscure the blessing and victory that comes through humility. But humility's reward is exaltation. The cross followed by the crown. And God will lift up, he promises to lift up those who Are humble. God promises to lift up those who are humble. So his command to have humility of mind isn't void of a promise of blessing and reward. And there will be a day when every heart lifted up in selfish ambition will be brought low. There will be a day. In an all inclusive way, in this section, if you're not a Christian in this room, maybe this is something God wants you to hear this morning. Every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And the picture is some will do it willingly, and some will do it with hesitation and resistance all the way to the end. But every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Our heart for you would be that you would surrender to him, find life in his name, find purpose in his name, find forgiveness through him It's the only place where you can find it. Fully and finally, he will be exalted over all and every time we'll confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We're gonna sing a song to that end. Let's, let's pray together. God, I believe we all know the, the war that take pl- takes place in our hearts for supremacy and we want to believe ourselves is more important than the next person, the person in our homes. Or, spouse possibly, our children, our roommates, our friends, little moments of conversation or significant moments where we need help from other people. We, we look to our own needs first, and God, we, we thank you that you've given us, Jesus, the, not only the command, but the example to follow. Thank you, Jesus, that you didn't leave us on our own. That while we were helpless, while we were weak, that you died for the ungodly. Thank you that you emptied yourself. Jesus, everything that God is, you are. But you became obedient to the point of death, and you became a servant. You became acquainted with grief, and you became the object of your Father's wrath so that we could be forgiven. Blessed be your name for the work that you have done. And I pray that it wouldn't just be unto the end of seeing us enjoy our salvation, although it's to be gloried in, but it would help us. It would help us to put other people more important than ourselves, to find joy in being among other people as as those who serve. Help us reflect your heart in our relationships. And that in our unity, as we strive for it, that the world would see, Jesus, that you were sent by the Father and that you make a difference in the lives of your people. You're awesome. You're worthy of praise. You're worthy of our lives and submission. Jesus, you're truly exalted over all now. And there will be one day where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess and there will be no question in the entire cosmos and every person will know that you are Lord to the glory of God the Father. So let's stand together and we'll sing to that end.